Well, good evening. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you, hope you do. Um, If not, you can find it perhaps on your phone. Our opening section of Scripture won't be on the slides, but I'll be looking at several other Scriptures tonight that will be. But to start, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, and I'd like for you to look at it yourself in your copy of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse number 9. You excited to hear about Jesus tonight? This is, we're, this is what we do. We're Christians, right? Now, technically, every time we have a Christian sermon, whether that's in Romans or Genesis and Esther, it has something to do with Jesus, It doesn't mean Jesus is under every rock in every story, but it somehow connects to this great story of salvation that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If it's a Christian sermon, and if it's a Christian sermon, it means it wouldn't go over well in a mosque or in a Jewish synagogue, for that matter. But tonight, we're zoning in and we're zooming in on and talking about In specific, what we were always sort of referring to, which is who Jesus is and how that makes a difference in our lives. So I hope that you are as passionate about this topic as I am. We're followers of Jesus. Tonight we get to talk about Jesus and the difference that this doctrine makes as we live our lives. So um, what better place to begin than Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 17. This message won't be an exposition of this text although I would like to do that, but this is a great starting point for what we're going to be learning about this evening. The writer of Hebrews says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom all are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Isn't that amazing? Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. That's Jesus claiming us. 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or comfort them that are tempted. I think some Christians are under the illusion 
that you have to know some things about Jesus in order to become a Christian. But it's less important to remember those very same things about Jesus in order to live as a Christian. And if that's a myth that even a small part of your soul has bought into, I hope to, through the scriptures, help destroy that myth for you tonight. I think if we take the New Testament seriously, what we discover is we look at this doctrine, the person and work of Christ. What we discover is that knowledge of the biblical doctrine of who Jesus is and what he has done is just as essential for living as a Christian as it was for you to become a Christian. And I hope by the end that you will buy into that. So what we're going to do is similar to what we've been doing in this series. I'm going to lay out just a very simple explanation of this doctrine for about 15 or so minutes. And then I'm going to give some practical insights. That is, I'm going to give some connection points. I want to show you from God's word how knowing the truth about Jesus shapes how you live. Now, in here, we have a lot of different opinions about the all-time greats. We have different opinions about who the all-time greatest actor is. Some of you may say Tom Hanks or Jimmy Stewart, Denzel Washington, Brad Pitt. I don't particularly care what you think because I know what I think and I'm right. (laughs) Others are in a pointless debate discussing whether LeBron James or Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time when those who take basketball seriously know that it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Do I still have a job? We'll see. Okay. We have disagreements about politicians. I won't even give any examples there. Disagreements about our favorite novelists or authors, our favorite poets, favorite artists. But as Christians, there is one person that we all share the same view of. One person we all give the same weight to. One person that we do not in this church divide over, and that is the person of Jesus. We believe that he is both man and God, which is what we're going to give a significant portion of our time talking about tonight. We believe that he suffered in our place for our sins. We believe that his death gives us life. That what he did on the cross meets our greatest need, which is salvation, forgiveness from our sins, and eternal life with the God that we have sinned against. Jesus is in our mission statement. Jesus is often how we end our prayers. He's at the center of our teaching, and our very name Christian means that we are followers of this person. So we're going to look at the person of Jesus, and then we're going to look at the work of Jesus, and then we're going to look at why all of this matters. Are you with me so far? All right. First of all, the humanity of Christ. Let's summarize that. The Bible's teaching on the person of Jesus could be summarized like this, that Jesus was both truly God and truly man in one person, and will be so forever. We say truly God, not, not usually fully God, but because fully implies exclusion. If you're fully something, you're not anything else. So instead, we carefully say he is 
truly God. That is, he could not be any more God than he is. Because he is God. And we say that he is truly man. He wasn't missing some facet of being human that we have. Now, sometimes we phrase it like this, that Jesus was, was man except he didn't sin. And while it's true that Jesus did not sin, being a true uh, full human in God's eyes originally did not mean being a sinner, right? We weren't created to sin. <laughs> we weren't meant to sin. We weren't intended to, to live against God and to demand our own way. We weren't intended to say no to God. So in that sense, Jesus, who lived his whole life on earth saying yes to God, is more human even than we are. Sin takes away from our humanity. So Jesus is truly human, truly God. When we look at his true humanity, we think of his virgin birth, which we read about earlier in the worship service. When Mary was told about Jesus' virgin birth, she had a good question. She said, how shall this be? Saying, I know not a man. The answer came in this, from the angel, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee in the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Luke 1, 34 and 35. This isn't uh, just a thing that we talk about during Christmas, although we do talk about it during Christmas, and we should talk about it during Christmas. This is one of the fundamentals of the Christian faith, that Jesus had an entrance into this world, like all of us, in that he had a human birth. But at the same time, Jesus had an entrance into this world like none of us, because it was a virgin birth. Now, Jesus, of course, didn't have to come in this way. God could have decided that he would come in another way. He could have made a different prophecy that, that Jesus could have came as, a, as sort of like a 30-year-old man in the prime of his life and just sort of popped into a human body and showed up in Nazareth one day. I, I suppose God is capable of doing that, wouldn't you agree? But it wasn't enough for Jesus just to have a body. He uh, entered this world in the way we do, in in a messy, painful, to marry, human birth. He lived as a, as a child. He even grew as a child. In his human nature, he had to sleep and eat and drink. He had to develop. Jesus had to learn how to walk. Isn't that amazing that he would humble himself like this? It, perhaps if Jesus would have just uh, popped into existence as a fully formed human being, we would have said, well, that doesn't seem very human to me. None of us were like that. Maybe Jesus would have seemed too distant from us. And perhaps if Jesus wouldn't have had a virgin birth, if it would have been a normal birth, we would have said, well, what's so special about that? So God in his wisdom makes Jesus' entrance into this world just like ours in that he was human born, but totally different from ours in that he was, in that he was virgin born. Some people think that's a little unbelievable. I don't think it is. If you read one of the Gospels and you read the stories about Jesus, if you believe even half of the stuff Jesus said about himself, that he could forgive sins, that he could die and rise from the dead, now, if you believe what Jesus says about himself and any of the miracles that he did, we would be surprised if he came to this earth in a normal way. The virgin birth actually makes sense in light of the life that Jesus lived and the things that he did. 
not only his virgin birth, but his human body. This seems less controversial for us today, but this uh, denying Jesus' human body, which is known as docetism, was actually one of the earliest Christian heresies. In fact, um, when uh, John the Apostle, in, in one of his letters, talks about the spirit of Antichrist, uh, that's a word that you, know, you see on Facebook all the time. Well, he's talking about people that actually deny that Jesus had a human, a truly human body, and that in every way he, he was physically human. A lot of people denied that. Now, like in the, you know, in the 1800s, we had more people denying that Jesus was God and just agreeing that he was human. But when Christianity was first getting started, the earliest heretics agreed that Jesus was God, but they were just repulsed by the idea that, that he would take on a human body. And so they said he was some sort of phantom that appeared to be a body. But as Christians, we believe that Jesus, that God the Son did humble himself in this way. That he didn't appear to be human. He didn't appear to have human skin or appear to have human blood or appear to have human hair. He actually did. That's what's so miraculous about it, that he would be willing to come that low for us. That's why he was rejected at Nazareth, his hometown. You can go read about how Jesus was rejected in Nazareth in the Gospel of Luke, and they don't say we should accept this man as the Messiah because, after all, he's glowing and 15 feet tall. No. They thought they could handle throwing him off a cliff because he looked like a normal guy. Isaiah 53, 2 says this. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. If anyone had the right to take on the perfect human physique when he came to earth, it would have been God the Son who created all things. But he said no to that and was willing to take on just a normal, ordinary, unappealing appearance. Jesus had a true human body. Why does this matter? What's the importance of Jesus' humanity? We know that he was truly human, but but what's the point? Well, a couple reasons this is so important to our faith. Number one, it's important that Jesus was human because his obedience was representative. Did you know that Jesus didn't just die for you? But Jesus also lived for you? Jesus lived for you. Jesus obeyed every command of his Father. Which really is the other half of, of justification. You know, sometimes we speak of justification uh, with the old cliche that when I'm saved, it is just as if I have never sinned. And that is, in truth, 50% of our justification. That God looks at our sin record, which was placed on the shoulders of Jesus, as it were, as he suffered on the cross, and the Lord Jesus Christ was blamed, he was held liable, he was treated as guilty for every sin you have ever committed, every sin you will commit in the future, the sins you know about, the sins you don't know about, so that could be wiped away, so that when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin at all. That's only half of justification. But the other half of the good news is this. And by the way, that's not enough to get us to heaven. The other half of justification is that when God the Father sees the Son, not only did he see our sin on him, but he sees his righteousness on us. 
He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Not just so that we could be without sin and some sort of neutral party to heaven or hell. No, no, so we could be made righteousness. Every good thing that Jesus ever did, did you know legally when it comes to the view of God in heaven, he treats you as if you did those good things? That's the other half of justification. So not only is, because Jesus was human, because he was a representative for you and and I and the whole human race, and it's effective for anyone who will put their faith in him, not only is it just as if we've never sinned, it's just as if we did all the good things Jesus did. That's what the Father sees when he looks at you and me tonight, if you can believe it. By one man's, uh, Romans 5, 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. If Jesus had not been a man also, then his sacrifice would not have been a substitute. He could not have died in our place. Without having a, a human body, he couldn't have died at all. God cannot die in himself. God is spirit. That's why Hebrews says in the text we read that so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest for us in things pertaining to God, he, he took on this body to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. The Son left the glories of heaven. Jesus took on a human body to feel pain, to experience hunger, to need physical rest, but most of all, to die in your place. Jesus was truly human. Secondly, the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ. Not only is Jesus truly human, Jesus is truly divine. Jesus is truly divine. Uh, There's so many places we could go, but one of my favorites is John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this isn't talking about the Bible. Hebrews did not exist until the writer of Hebrews started writing Hebrews. This is talking about something else because this word, not just a scripture about God, but this word was God himself. In other words, it's a word because it perfectly accurately expresses God. It reveals God, which by the way, your words reveal you, right? It expresses God, it reveals God, but it's also God himself. So this is a person and it's a person who is with God, who is God and who reveals God. Now, we're not talking about the Bible. This is something much greater. Because verse 14 says that this word was made flesh. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. This is not just a godly person. This is not just a prophet sent from God. This is not just a man who taught people about God. This is God. God in the flesh. He was there before the beginning. He was there before creation because he's God. Now, John 1 is not the only place where we see the deity of Christ. It's really all over the New Testament, and we actually find it in different ways. Now, if you, um, it's like a lot of things if, when, you, when it comes to studying the Bible. If you get out a search program and, and search the words, deity of Christ... You're not going to find a lot, right? There, there's, no, uh, there's no passage where Jesus says, let me lecture you on the deity of Christ. He doesn't use that terminology. Well, then how do we find the deity of Christ in the Bible? Well, here's a really, really simple acronym uh, that's helpful. This comes from a book called Putting Jesus in His Place. It's a book about uh, the deity of Christ, and uh, we see it in, in five ways, okay? 
Uh, this may be helpful to write down or at least type in your phone. Um, the ways that we see Jesus' deity in the Gospels and in the Epistles. Number one, Jesus shares the honor of God. That's H. Um, and then two, Jesus shares all the attributes of God. That's A. And then three, Jesus takes on the names of God. That's N. He does the deeds of God, things only God can do, like forgive sin, raise people from the dead. That's D. And he has the seat of the throne of God. That is, he shares God's authority and claims he's going to judge the world. So if you've kept up, that's H-A-N-D-S, hands. It's just a way to remember the five different proofs of the deity of Christ, which are really, when, once you start looking for those, you'll see they're all over the New Testament. They're all over the place. Why does the deity of Christ matter? We know Jesus was human, but why did he also have to be God? Well, number one, because Jesus is God, he is an infinite person. Jesus, unlike us, is also infinitely valuable. Now, I don't understand everything about how salvation works. But I know that if we live a life of sin against God, and if we die, and if we go to hell, and hell is a real place, by the way, that we have to suffer for eternity because of the crimes we've committed against God. Jesus suffers for all the sins of the world in a few hours. And dies. And in a few hours, Jesus' suffering, because perhaps he is an infinite person, is so much more valuable than our own that through that he can save us from an eternity of punishment. Jesus is God, so he's an infinite person. Also, it's important that Jesus is God because salvation is God's work. Salvation is not something you and I can do. It's not something that we can help God out with. It's not something where we meet God halfway, that God does some good things to help us out, and then we do some nice things to help God out, and then we meet each other in the middle, and if we're good enough and God works hard enough, we end up getting to heaven. No, no, it doesn't work like that at all. We will either be saved by God himself, or we won't be saved at all. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. You and I have no hope outside of God intervening. And God himself came and he intervened in the person of Jesus. He became vulnerable. He became killable. Because only God can save you. The only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation, as Edward said, was the sin that made it necessary. Jesus does the rest of the heavy lifting. Aren't you thankful for that? Number three, only God could mediate between God and men. Only God can mediate between God and men. For there is one mediator, this is 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, I'm sorry, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Our relationship with God is so severed, and the chasm between you and God is so wide in your sin, only God himself can bridge that. We don't have the right to be our own mediator and to tell God that we're going to make an arrangement and we're going to strike a bargain for our eternal soul. We have offended him too greatly. Our rebellion has went far too deep against the king of the universe. So we are not in a position to make deals with God. You can't mediate your relationship with God. You can't tell God what you're going to do to try to fix this thing called sin. Only God can mediate a relationship between himself and sinners. And thankfully, God has. Not through saints, not through other Christians, not through your own good works, 
but in our one mediator, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. All right, that's the person of Christ. Let's spend a few moments on the work of Christ. First of all, uh, his death, his death. Uh, Scriptures plainly teach us that Jesus' death was a substitutionary atonement. That is, Jesus didn't just die as an inspiring example or to show us how martyrs can be brave or to show us what it looks like to believe in a cause. Jesus died punished in our place. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. What did this experience of Jesus' death involve? Well, it involved pain. Unbelievable pain. Matthew 26.38, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Verse 42, O my Father, he's praised in the garden, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Jesus' death is not just a historical footnote. It's not just a thing that happened. It was incredible, infinite pain. Why? Of course, his death by execution involved physical pain, right? We understand that. I don't have to labor that point. It's partially the physical pain that we think about as we meditate and reflect on Jesus' death for us. There's a reason that the passion wasn't rated PG. It was a violent, barbaric death. But there was another kind of pain, too. Actually, a couple of, a couple of kinds of pain. Uh, number, you know, number two is the pain of bearing God's wrath. That, that Jesus um, felt the holy displeasure of his Father against sin. And not only that, but the pain of bearing our sin itself. Now, maybe this will at least begin to help us think in this direction. Um, if, if you had friends or siblings growing up, then at some point in time, they did something and accused you of that thing, right? You were blamed for something you didn't do. How many of you, when you were a kid, you were blamed for something that you did not do? Okay, the rest of you are liars. Or maybe you didn't know anybody, I don't know. Uh, that's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, was it? Was there anything worse than your dad or your mom looking at you with this face that says, I'm so disappointed in your existence because they think you've done something that you didn't do? It just feels awful. It's worse than doing something bad, being blamed for something you didn't do. I don't even think that helps us to begin to imagine what Jesus felt like because Jesus had a soul that was completely free of any action of sin or even any desire to sin. And none of us know what that's like, right? Can you admit, like, we just don't get that? We don't know what it would be like to never have sinned or never even desire sin? So what was it like for Jesus on the cross to be held guilty, not just of one thing he didn't do, but all of the billions and billions of crimes against God, from the small ones to the unspeakable ones, He was treated by his father as if he had done those things. Can you even begin to imagine what that would have felt like for Jesus? Yet he did this, and in fact, Hebrews says says that he did this for the joy that was set before him. As unimaginable as that is, Jesus found a sense of joy even in bearing that because he knew it would save you. Not only Jesus' death, but then his resurrection. His resurrection. 
It's important because Jesus' resurrection is a God's stamp of approval on everything that Jesus claimed to do in his death. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Essentially, Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40, he tells his critics, if you are skeptical of who I am, bank everything on this, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. Right? Like Jesus placed all his bets on that happening. And as Christians, we do the same thing. It comes down to Jesus' resurrection. We believe that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. And that's why Paul says in Romans 4 that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. I can know I'm justified. The resurrection gives me final proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And that means, get this, he did what he said he was going to the cross to do. And you can rest in that assurance too. And I hope you do. Christ's resurrection also ensures our own resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, as God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. And finally, the continuing work of Christ. Hebrews uh, over in chapter 9 and then beginning in verse 24. Let's look at the continuing work of Christ and then we'll um, make some t- uh, t- give some takeaways and go home. Hebrews 9 beginning in verse 24. What an amazing passage in the Bible. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, the temple isn't about the temple. The temple just represents the the presence of God. This is where Christ is entered for us. Verse 25, "Nor nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus enters the presence of God, of God the Father for you. Not often, not needing to do this eternally, but once. And once was all that it needed. So let's recap quickly. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Jesus died a substitutionary death. He physically resurrected from the dead. And what is the continuing work of Christ? He intercedes for us before the Father. I love 1 John 2. If any man sin, John has told them, by the way, don't sin. Don't sin, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amazing. So that's the doctrine of Christ. What does this do for us? What would it do for you Thursday morning if you got up and you began your day remembering who Jesus is and what he's done? Let's give a few points. Number one, remembering the person and work of Jesus will grow humility in our hearts. It will grow humility in our hearts. I love Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament where Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you remember? What did Jesus do? What, what, mind, what mindset, what, what attitude is he talking about? What does he want the Philippians to have? He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant, and he was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. 
Can you start to wrap your brain around that? If you really understand that, if you really believe it, then it will do in your life what Paul is trying to get the Philippians to see. It will make you humble. It will make gossip seem pointless. It will make all of our tiny, dumb little efforts to make ourselves look better than other people a complete waste of time. It kills divisiveness in a church. It destroys cliques. Do you see how remembering the attitude of Jesus does away with that? How Jesus viewed himself as he comes into this incarnation, Paul is saying in Philippians 2, is a roadmap for how we need to think about ourselves in the church, in our lives as Christians. We either will live remembering the incarnation and be humble, or we will be prideful. But there is not a Christian on this globe who lives with a real real awareness of Jesus' incarnation who also lives in pride. It is one or the other, but you cannot have both together. They do not coexist. They don't. Um, How many have read anything by Franz Kafka? A few of you. Cole, here we go. Not my favorite author. He's really depressing. Um, But... He's a good author. He's, he's a good author. He's just depressing. Um, Franz Kafka, and, and maybe you've heard of his book, Metamorphosis. It is very disturbing. Not my favorite short novel. Uh, in Metamorphosis, um, which the way I understand it is a kind of a parable about Kafka's relationship with his father, there is a person who, who uh, transforms over time because he's been ignored by people into a beetle. Like he's a bug. And his, his family like wants to step on him and, and crush him. It is very, very haunting, okay? Um, go home and read it tonight if you want. Get it on Kindle and like, or not. It's really disturbing. Um, you know, as, as, dis, as disgusting and as offensive as it is in our minds to think of a human being transformed into a beetle, Jesus stepped further down than that when he came from heaven to walk on the dirt of this planet. Further down than that. Can you imagine that? That Paul is now telling us in Philippians 2, that's the attitude about yourself you need to have? So don't esteem your things better than the things of others. Well, yeah, duh, of course. If, this is, if what Jesus did for me in the incarnation is supposed to in any way be reflected in how I actually think about myself, of course I'm not gonna, just going to look on my own things and be concerned with myself. How could I do that and claim to follow him? That's our pattern for living. If we remember the person work of Jesus, if we live inside this doctrine, it will develop humility. It will grow humility in our hearts. Uh, number two. Remembering the person and work of Jesus reframes Christian leadership. Now, not everyone in here is a manager or a CEO or a pastor, but all of us lead in some way. All of us are leaders in that there are people that that look up to us, they take our cues from us, could be your children, could be at your job, you have people that work under you. All of us have some realm of leadership where we're in charge of something. Being a Christian and then remembering the doctrine of Christ will totally change how you think about leadership. John 13, verses 13 through 17. You call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. 
Isn't that amazing? If anyone had the right to come and be served, it would be Jesus. But he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I came to serve. The doctrine of Christ is a reminder that at the end of the day, all of our leadership opportunities in the church, in home, in our vocations, in the community, all of our leadership opportunities, if we are a Christian, are simply examples to wash other, uh, they're uh, opportunities to wash other people's feet. And if you're not thinking of it like that, you're not remembering the doctrine of Christ. Number three, let's talk about this. It empowers us to forgive others. Remembering the person and work of Christ will empower me to forgive other people. Ephesians 4.32, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Aren't you glad the verse doesn't end like this? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another? Because if the verse ended like that, some of us in here would think, I, could, I can't do that. I, I can't be kind to other people. That's not the way I, that God made me. I can't forgive other people. That's just not who I am, David. That's not my personality. Paul is talking to these people, but he's not talking to me because I don't have it within myself to do that. But that's not where the verse ends. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Who in your life right now comes to mind as someone that you just can't ever imagine yourself forgiving? Who in your life has done something to you that's unforgivable? Paul's Paul's command to you, God's command to you, is not to reach down deep into your soul and find forgiveness so you can give it out. No, God is not asking us to give away anything he's not already given us. You see, when we are Christians who remember the person and work of Jesus, we will realize we're not called to bring forgiveness out of ourselves and give it to other people. We're just called to give people something we already have. Jesus is telling us to pass along what he's already given us. God's not asking you to do anything that he has not already done for you. We don't create forgiveness. We reflect it. We bounce it back at other people who have hurt us because we know, we know if you, if you have any spiritual self-awareness, you will know no one has hurt you like you have hurt God. We know that. So remembering the personal work of Jesus empowers us to forgive. Let's go quickly. Number four, it frees us from guilt. Man, I talk to so many Christians who are in the bondage of guilt. They're in the bondage of guilt. They're trusting Christ. They've repented of their sins. They're living a life of faith. And yet they struggle with guilt. They struggle with guilt. And this is why I tell people all the time, preach the gospel to yourself. Your lost coworker needs the gospel. Your lost aunt needs the gospel. Your lost kids need the gospel. But Christian, you need the gospel just as much as they do. Live in Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God chastises us. He gets our attention. He instructs us. But God's not judging you if you're in Christ. God doesn't have condemnation toward you if you're in Christ. God doesn't have wrath toward you if you're in Christ. And if you think that sounds flimsy or I'm trying to get rid of God's wrath, no, that's not the case at all. Jesus took all of God's wrath for you. The wrath of God is very real. But if you're a Christian, you just don't face it anymore. But if we live without remembering the person and work of Jesus, we will unnecessarily be bound by guilt and it'll drive you crazy. 
No, you can be free from guilt. Number five, it enables us to bear our suffering. I love uh, Jesus. You know, Jesus says, whatever you lose in this life for my sake, lands, family, friends. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, if you follow me, it's all going to be great. You won't lose anything. People will tell you that. They're not Christians. Jesus says, guys, you're going to lose a lot of stuff, but I will not only give those things to you in this life and the next, I'll give you more than what you started with. (laughs) Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 10 that uh, he wants to fellowship with Jesus in his suffering so that he can attain to the resurrection. Do you realize all the suffering, no matter how bad it is in your life, all the trials you go through, all the ways you've been hurt, all the ways you've been betrayed, all the ways people have wronged you, every time something just unbelievably bad happens to you, it should help you see the resurrection in even a bigger light than you had before. Because Jesus says the resurrection, it's going to make everything okay. I will restore to you what you've lost. You you say, Dave, you have no idea what I've lost the last six months. Your reward just got bigger. Jesus' promises to you just got that much bigger because of what you've lost. Now, it enables us to bear our suffering. We suffer with Christ, and this is the pattern of the Christian life, because we look forward to also being raised with him. You will not lose anything in this life that Jesus will not give you back in a much better way in the new earth when he resurrects you to be with him. Number six, remembering the personal work of Jesus fills our hearts with hope. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, they'll never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Do you know Jesus is holding on to you right now? Like getting saved is not just something that happened, that it began a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who is literally working for you, praying for you, interceding for you, advocating for you right now. He didn't just do something to you in the past. There wasn't just some sort of transaction that happened when you made a decision. Jesus is committed to you forever. Forever. And when you remember that, it will fill your heart with hope. I'm, I'm done, but um, the musicians are going to come. I'll, I'll just ask you. I know it's, it's later, but I'm just going to ask you uh, to do two things tonight. I'm going to ask you to come pray when, uh, when, the, when they start playing. And I really want you to just pray two uh, very simple things with me tonight. Number one, I want you to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and for what he's done for you. And I hope, I hope, I, I hope if you're a Christian, at least something, something that was talked about tonight makes you thankful. I really hope that. I hope that something got your gratitude radar like that there's a blip on it at least. So I want, number one, I want you to come and I want you to pray and just thank Jesus for something he's done for you. Thank, thank him for who he is and what he's done for your life. Then number two, I want you to ask God this. A very, very simple prayer. Okay, very simple prayer. God, help me to live like this is true. Help me to live like this doctrine is true. Help me to get up tomorrow in the morning and live like I believe this stuff that we talked about tonight. Would you do that? Would you pray those two things with me? Let's pray. And 